Hello and welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, our monthly podcast where usually we take two soundtracks, compare them across five rounds and declare an overall winner, but we're not doing that today, are we, co-host Ella, who I should have introduced before I jumped into this? <laughs> That's alright, it's fine. I am, I, I'll forgive you for making me be a second thought this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. But yes, the main thing is we're not talking about specific soundtracks today. We are, it's sort of like a, a reversal of what we did last year. So last year, uh, regular listeners might remember, we had a, a very lovely chat where we talked about all our favourite little, you know, little tiny tidbits in soundtracks and stuff like that. And it was really sweet and lovely. And we enjoyed it so much, we thought we would go the exact opposite this year. And rather than talk about things we like, we're going to talk about stuff we kind of hate yeah things that just kind of grind our gears or just like we yeah think, like why do why would you do that what were you thinking and why is that popular it's kind of like to kind of comment on the state of film music nowadays yeah and sort of like maybe trends that are beginning to pick up that we are perhaps not so not so keen on mm, but my, others might be keen on and there's just yeah it's interesting because I think some of the things that we'll be talking about, are the you know, we acknowledge that there's going to be moments where people will disagree, mm-hmm. um, but this is just what we think. You know, everyone's entitled to an opinion. Absolutely, and like just just speaking from my own list, and I, I'll also point out right from the beginning, neither of us have seen each other's list. We have no idea what each other are going to say. Mm. We just know that we've each got three things that we hate, and we're going to see what happens. Mm. Uh, certainly for mine. In, in every case, there are times when this the specific thing I'm talking about is an amazing thing and is, is, a, is a great part of a soundtrack. The problem is more when they're used continuously or inappropriately in places where it doesn't work so much. Yeah, I think I have a feeling that we'll probably be talking about the same thing in some ways. Okay. <laughs> I think that, uh, that's I kind of a trend of our own, isn't it? When we all... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's not exactly breaking new ground for us to both decide the exact same things. I, I'm going to throw down our spoiler alert. We're not necessarily specifically going to spoiler anything, but we just actually don't know what's going to happen. But we are talking about music that happens in films and we might have to talk about what's happening around it. So who knows? There might be spoilers. And, hey, good luck, because you've got no idea what film it's going to be. But it's still so going to be a really good listen. You're going to enjoy yeah, the yeah. ride either way. And yeah, if you disagree with us, don't switch off. Just listen to the end and then quietly go off and hit us up on social media and tell us how wrong we are, because that's fun. Yeah, let's have a debate. We always like to have a debate. At Tristellar Music, wherever you want to send it. Let's look, let's let's just get right on with it. Let's go on to uh, pet peeve number one. And I'm going to let you go first, Ella. Okay, well, it's okay. So it okay so you've seen it right the new one the remake believe it or not i actually haven't seen it okay so you haven't seen either either the old one no uh, i've seen the old or... one i've seen the old one okay good at least you see the old one yeah but it's a long time ago i know i know what the film's about so i watched it in the cinema mm-hmm. and there were the music some of the music uh was great and worked well but there were certain scenes where when the music came i literally remember distinctly just kind of sitting up and just being like what 
what? Oh. I just felt a bit like, mm, no, I really don't like this. No, like you could, you should have taken the music out. Like th this bit should have been silent and then bring back the music. It's, okay, it, so it's inappropriate music placement. You're exactly, saying. yeah. So whether it was done in, um, obviously it was done in post-production with the editing. Um, <laughs> so for me, the one that really stood out was the library scene um, okay. where... I can't remember the character's name, maybe Ben, but... Okay, so um, one of the kids. One of the kids who's um, flicking through um, one of these like old sort of history books about the missing kids or something. And then obviously he realizes that one of the kids had a missing head. And then there's a shot of um, the It uh, red balloon kind of floating through the library and kind of like leading him like telling him to kind of follow the balloon down to the basement okay. and at that point the music was okay yeah it's it's that sort of childlike uh, child children singing lullaby i think it was a, a british um lullaby it's being sung called oranges and limes or something like that but oranges and lemons bells and that's lemons it. yeah that one okay yeah, that's the one and um Again, that worked okay. That was fine. Although in some ways I felt like mm, that could have been even more creepier if it was just no music and you just see this balloon just like, kind of like floating and then you ease the music in. And the music kind of carries on pretty much all the way through. Like there's no pauses whereby you have a moment to just kind of like take in what's just could happen. There's too much. You almost feel like you're being emotionally led and pinpointed that now this is bit this bit is going to be really really scary like i'm going to heighten your state mm. and i'm going to make it really obvious so the reveal of when the ghost of the boy with the missing head comes in and you just see him going down the steps and then it is revealed that he has no head and then the music just kind of like ah, i can't i'm it's weird it's kind of i'm explaining it but i feel like i'm not explaining it well no, I, I mean, I, I, I totally get it. You like you act, you feel the manipulation coming before you see the scene. So it's like it's it ruins its own surprise. I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, it almost be, it was just too obvious, and I didn't get a moment to actually to feel threatened. Yeah. Because the music just did everything for me. You yeah. know, so when then you get the shock value of the kid, the ghost kid chasing the other kid um it was just like i was just like okay well yeah i know of course yeah uh, i i agree um do you agree you haven't even seen the film though no but you you've described you, you say you haven't described it well you i think you've described the scene very well and i mean the spoiler alert was definitely warranted and uh, one thing i'll ask you um before we talk about because i you, i think you've definitely flagged a, a very good point but do you think that this is strictly the fault of the music or do you think that the scene itself was poorly constructed? But this is where I was saying how the soundtrack on its own is great. Mm. It is really great piece of music. It's just the placement of where it was put in the film and how there wasn't the levels of bringing down the music or moments of where there should be no music to kind of create a sense of danger. Mm-hmm. Like in reality, we are we don't have a soundtrack to our lives. No. So and it felt like there were certain moments in that film where there shouldn't be music because this is meant to represent reality and that you know, this is happening. Like 
can you imagine yeah. just you know in real life seeing a balloon a red balloon that's all of a sudden just having a, a mind of its own and just kind of like floating around yeah. you know because your mind is so powerful to kind of create fear you know or not create fear so and i just felt like maybe for me that's that's my experiences of when i was watching the film that i felt like i needed more of that some of my own time to kind of conjure up fear yeah well let's let's listen to the track before we uh move on to talking about it anymore need to watch it Um, and then, yeah, I'll be intrigued. It's only, it's only three minutes long, but I'm intrigued to know if you agree. So uh, a, a couple of things I'll pick up on here. I mean, first of all, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I know that I think it's Ennio Morricone used to talk about how, like, the soundtrack has to come in very gently and only when invited, mm-hmm. um, which I, I, I always find a very interesting kind of a point. It's, it's not obviously always true, particularly in horror. Sometimes you want to come in very much not gently and uninvited in horror. It's finding the right balance between it is. shocking but then creating space 
Yeah, exactly. Creating space for the rest of the film to work. The other thing I'll say, and this isn't the fault of the music, but the music is definitely part of the problem, is I just feel like that's a very poorly constructed scene and very uh, a poorly constructed scare in that the payoff is too soon. Yeah. Like he finds, he, you know, and, and just the, the whole the whole bit of he discovers the whole headless thing and then literally a minute later is being attacked by a, he- by the a headless, headless ghost. Thing, yeah. yeah there, there's just, there's no... There's no build up to it. No, exactly. And uh, other horror films, and I'm, I'm remembering in particular, um, it's not even the, the best horror film, and I, I don't think you even particularly like it, but like the original The Conjuring, the the clapping scene kind of stuff, or the the, clap, the clapping game, like they do that a few times to build up the tension in it. And the first few times it goes nowhere, and then when it finally does go somewhere, it has it has payoff because yeah. they've they've given it time for that idea to build up tension. Yeah. Um, and in this case, they just they don't. It's a it's a short set piece scare, and they're just not that good. I mean, it itself is not really that good. That remake, to no, be that's honest. A shame. Again, some people might disagree, but um, I wasn't scared at all. And I just felt like the music where it should have... Like, if the film itself is not great, at least the music would have made it scarier. But for me, it just felt like neither did delivered mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. But I'm glad you agree. I thought it was just uh, interesting. But you agree just because yeah. you... Yeah. Okay, good. But yeah, so that was my sort of pet peeve. Yeah. If you want to say. Okay, so what will we label that? Like sort of uh, excessive foretelling? Excessive excessive foretelling and just poor editing, maybe? Poor yeah. placement? Where it actually defeats the purpose of the scene that it's meant to enhance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that one. That's a, the, that's a very good one to start off with, I think. Cool. What's, so what's yours then? So my first one, I'm, again, I'm going to like, I'm going to get the obvious one out of the way so that we can get, in, we can get onto the more uh unusual ones mm-hmm. i'm gonna go with inconsistent sound okay inconsistent sound okay basically it's when a score has too many different types of music in it mm-hmm. which obviously is not to say that you shouldn't have a variety of music in scores of, of course you could but like sometimes you get too many to the point that you've got you, you just you don't know what a film's trying to say at any given point and and the soundtrack doesn't sound cohesive as mm-hmm. a whole Mm-hmm. So it can partly be that when it's just it's just everywhere and just like I don't know what this film sounds like and therefore I am not being communicated as to what's going on, mm-hmm. or it can be and this is the the one that people are probably going to expect when a score has definitely established a style and a sound and then wildly changes for no particularly good reason and um, obviously the example I'm going to play for that is the Light of the Seven. <laughs> I knew you were gonna s- stick that in. Um, no, I disagree with that. But we—if you want to know—I'm not gonna go further into it. Uh, you have to watch. Uh, what was it? What episode was that? Episode three of uh, season two. So, 
Yeah, it was a, a, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Yeah, but you, so you can have my full explanation of what we did and didn't like about that particular exactly, track. and us getting a little bit heated. But we're not going to go yes. there today. No, again. We're, not, we're not going to do that today. But 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 it's I'll just that, accept it's that it. Point. So I'll yeah. just accept that that's your um, beef. But other examples, and I think these are ones where you kind of do agree. Um, is for example, and it, it was it came up in another one of our shows. So like in Anastasia, where it like it, about half the tracks had this sort of lovely, you know, Tchaikovsky like Russian sound, and then you had these incredibly American Broadway songs as well. And you're like, which which is this? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, pick a pick a sound and go with it, because um, they just they don't feel like they're in the same film. And it, it and it, the problem I had with Light of Seven, and I, clearly this didn't happen for everybody, is it immediately took me out of the moment. And I think Anastasia kind of did that for you as well. Like you hear that mm. very Broadway sound, just like, no, this isn't this isn't the story of Russian princesses anymore. This is yeah. just a Broadway show. Is there another example, like a, a film or where you felt that way as well? Uh, it, it happens probably more in TV than in film. It mm. definitely happens in... Um, I think it probably even happens a couple of times in American Gods. I mean, American Gods is one of those interesting cases where it does wildly jump around With and that's part of its style. different styles. Yeah, yeah and that's definitely. part of its thing and it kind of establishes it early. So on on the whole, I I will I don't criticise it for jumping around because it, it communicates early on, this is what we're going to do. But there are times, and I guess maybe with American Gods, it's possibly more when it... Um, Whenever it decides to play with something you perhaps know as, as a person, you know very well from another context, it can suddenly bring you out because it's like, oh, I remember this song from Blah, and that maybe takes you out of it in the moment, which is not really its fault, but is something it can do. I, I, but I do think there were definitely a few moments in American Gods where just the sound didn't quite feel American Gods like because it usually has that very indie rock kind of a sound, mm. um, and sometimes it didn't. Um, I think you had that feeling from the the the, the balletic scene right at the end of season one. Mm, um, yes, exactly. Yeah, which uh, is probably quite enough on that. Uh, shall we go to your second? Okay, so my second one might be one of yours as well, but okay, it's, I look um, forward to it. It's hero music. And oh, it's, it's not one of mine. Go oh, on. It's a no- oh well. When I say hero music, I'm kind of talking about the Marvel slash DC period, mm-hmm. the films that they've kind of come out with, and it's just in my t- in my view, it been has been quite unforgettable music. Oh, okay, the, the, the forgettable Marvel hero theme trope, yeah, basically. Be- yep. Because I just feel like um, those films that's been coming out, with a few exceptions. Um, it seems like for me that all they were really caring about was more about creating moods and textures and not creating identifiable themes that the audience can be can attach themselves to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be with exceptions, as I said, to Captain America because that yeah. I do remember the Captain America theme, the Avengers, and Black Panther. Yeah, I kind of recognise the Wonder Woman theme as well. Perhaps more because of the sound than the theme itself. Well, well, yeah, and and Wonder Woman, but I don't know the 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 theme to Batman or Superman. I can't hum that. I just yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, with like, an exception with Wonder Woman, that's true because it is quite uh, striking when it came well, out. And it, it's Led Zeppelin on cello, basically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's all you need to remember. And. Yeah, and I just felt, but like all these films that were really 
popular and very like like box office hits and for some reason the music there's nothing identifiable about them aside from the visuals um like the iron man theme i don't know what that is black widow for god's sakes don't know what her theme is you know so when she comes on the when she comes on screen i'm just kind of like normally like we say with um batman returns like whenever the catwoman comes in she, like the theme follows her through it as well mm-hmm. you know and it's kind of like <sighs> It's, I miss those themes, those identifiable themes, because they're almost like a, an invisible cape that kind of follows mm-hmm. you onto around the film. Does that make sense? It does. I think the example that I would give is I actually don't think, in fact, I'm pretty sure I have never watched the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Like, if I have, it was before I was sentient enough to remember. Mm-hmm. And yet... If I think of, well, what's the theme to Superman? That's what I think of. I And I, I genuinely have seen most of the modern Superman movies. And I it, yet it the one I probably have never seen is the one that I remember as being the Superman theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, because none of the other ones ever made a impact. There's this debate that's going around about the fact that the themes to film music and themes I guess in pop music like melodies like melody is do you think that melody is dying yeah I mean yeah I I, I certainly am very aware of the trope because it seems like um the melody is as like as our attention span is diminishing is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because before melodies like lines um back from classical used to be very Mm. ornate and be very I wouldn't say com- complex, but there were more than one note. They were there were a consistent level number of notes that kind of you know you kind of forced you to kind of really pay attention to those highs and lows. And uh, do you know what I mean? I do. I mean, outside of like kind of the beginning of the end here is sort of Wagner, right? Like Wagner kind of brought with the whole light motif, etc. Was the idea of you keep a theme as just one thing, which then film did and now seems to have died. Whereas particularly before him and pretty much every other composer in his era other than him, what you did was you had a melody, and you, like a theme, and then you played with it for 20 minutes. Like you took a theme and you did various variations. You took it here, you took it there. And that's kind of what music was, was an exploration of where you could go with a melody. That's definitely dead. Like nobody does that anymore. If At best, you have a theme and you play it again and again and again and again and again until it drills into people's head. So nobody plays with it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The hook has basically been has taken a completely new meaning. Yeah. The um, and the irony being that uh, some of the biggest songs lately have been kind of more traditional. Like I would say probably the two most. I don't know, not not best, but like the most sort of enduring songs the last five years that I can recall have been weirdly Despacito and Old Town Road, both of which are actually like classic songs. You know, like they they have a chorus, they have a verse, they 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 have melody to a certain extent. They're pretty traditional songs, and I guess maybe just because they're so different to everything else that charts, that's why they have lasted, because they are just old school. And the closest thing to a song that you hear on constant repeat that I can think of, and I hate it as a song, but it at least it plays with its sound, is that Leonard Cohen Hallelujah, which at least like it's very simple, but it kind of 
it has a, a simple musical concept and it plays with it in certain directions that makes it more and more intense. It brings it back. It makes it intense again. It's yeah. at least it, it's at least playing on the idea of here is the theme and I'm going to do some things with it, even if it's so simple that he can't do much. He at least plays with it. Yeah. I think people are just getting... Is the question that are people getting lazy? Um, is it because the use of computer makes things a lot more quicker to... Right. I think the loss of melody is a fad, and I, th- I suspect melody will come back. I think we're just in a very minimalist phase at the moment. Well, yeah, and I think because people, it's just it's easier to kind of create a three-note um, chant or a three-note rhythm for people to mm. be able to repeat because, as I said, people's attention span is getting lower and lower and lower um, yeah. with the social media and uh, just even to be able to write... Um, Compose music. It's a lot quicker. Yeah. So what was, what's your second? We've begun to hit the vein that I suspect we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. I'm going to bring another one that it definitely it happens in the same films, but it's not quite the same thing. And I, I call this the use of drum and percussion tracks. Oh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I think I know. I think, okay, yeah, I think you, okay. you, think you know? Okay. And it, it's... <laughs> It's got nothing to do with me being against percussion and drums in general. That they're fine and they definitely are very useful in film. Right. The problem is um, a, a particular recent trend of uh, basically just laying down a, a, a drum groove for a whole track and just leaving it there, specifically in action tracks. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the example I'm going to play is a film in which it is used very, very well, and I, I'll talk about that in a sec. And then I'll also explain why it's terrible that this has then been borrowed by literally everybody for every other film ever made since. And so the track I'm going to play is pretty much any track from from the film Dunkirk would do, but I'm going to go with the one that everybody listens to, which is Supermarine. I know exactly what you're talking about. That sort of repeated energetic rhythms, which are great and uh, and easy to do for some scenes. And as mm-hmm. you say, but I, I completely agree, it's just been so overused. Yeah. So you've got, yeah, so uh, there's so much here, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the ostinato is just a general sound. Yes, it's overused and is overused because, and this is where you definitely are, right? It uh, Ostinatos sound amazing on samples when when done on a computer as opposed to actual phrasing which sounds in general pretty awful done on a computer so so there's a huge part of that but i'll even take that out to an extent and just go down to the the use of the just the the grooves in general mm-hmm. so the, the underlying groove that is powering whether it is powering a string ostinato or powering drums the problem for me 
is how even it is. Uh, and it's, 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 the whole, it's the whole kind of package here. So one of the big things that, um, that Zimmer brought in, particularly in his work with Christopher Nolan, was this idea that Zimmer goes off and he writes like a whole suite of music that will go with the film before the film's even made, often while it's still in pre-production. And then when they film it and then they edit it, they use that, that music and they just kind of like slap it on top. Now, and, and that has become pervasive to the to the point where I, I literally, I, I went to an event um, a couple of weeks ago, like a Q&A for one of the films that I'd done. And one of the directors sort of asked, oh, did you write the music um, before or after the film was made? And I said, well, after, because, you know, that's what you normally do, right? And he was like, oh, I, I could never... I could never do that. Like, how, And then he asked the director, how, how did you edit this film without having the music there to edit to? And, like, that's, that's completely ass about. Uh, <laughs> like, because when, when you're, as composers, when you're writing, like, a, a music for an action scene, you, you get your percussion and stuff to build up the, the speed and the, the energy of the scene and all mm. those sorts of things. But if the scene hasn't been shot yet, you don't know what it is. So I'm very surprised at that comment, though. Yeah. So it's, it kind of shows weird, that right? that is the new trend that people as composers, like, you know, you're kind of almost expected to write the music beforehand. And then the film it's basically like turn everything on its head, like a 180 right? degree. Yeah. And like naturally, like what would you do if you were told, oh, write action music um, before a scene to be done? You'd, you'd, you'd pick a fast tempo and you'd write at, at, at most, maybe you would have it like you'd, you'd sort of draw your tempo sort of get maybe gets faster and faster and faster like you know if anyone like this to like half an agila at a jewish wedding or something or it just gets quicker and quicker like at most you might do that but in general you're just going to set like a, a really quick groove and and you go and that's exactly what Hans zimmer does a lot and now with christopher nolan that's not such a bad thing so in the case of dunkirk i mean you haven't seen it but like the whole kind of theme of Dunkirk is it's he's he's playing with time because it's Christopher Nolan and he always plays with time and it's all about like time running out so the fact that it has this like metronomic ticking clock kind of a quality just gives it this like endless inevitability to everything which is which is effective and it's effective in this particular film but when you then throw that onto that idea onto other movies that are perhaps meant to be a lot more dynamic and a lot more like surprising if you think of like your classic sort of, you know, James Bond chase where, you know, you run through the town after the the other spy or whatever, the villain, and then like a car comes across and all of a sudden you've got to change your plans and you, all of a sudden you're climbing on the roof or, you know, or the, the parade comes through and you have to slow down and, and watch it. Like the whole point of most of these action films is the dynamism, like sudden changes of pace in in, in the scene. And if, you're, um, if your track is just going... For like twenty minutes, you don't get any dynamic. You don't get any change of pace. Yeah. Um, and like, if the thing that I would encourage people to do, if you want to kind of hear the difference, is compare something like any action music for Dunkirk, which is basically all of the music of Dunkirk, or the action music in The Dark Knight, which just have these constant tempos, to something like The Bridge of Khazad Doom from Lord of the Rings, where it just wildly changes tempo and feel and intensity from second to second because that was written after the film and he goes, oh, okay, so, you know, the, we, we change perspective. We're suddenly we're doing close-ups on people's faces and the reactions, so we slow down for a bit. And now we're off again. Boom, 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 boom. Like, 
and it just it adds so much energy to a scene and yeah this trend of just the constant ostinato and drum track at a constant tempo because the music was written before it it is it makes action films no longer action films absolutely so many times lately i've watched an action movie and like yeah i've said it before i've given up on marvel movies entirely at this point where you just get a 20 minute action sequence and it's not exciting you're just like yep yep (laughs) off we go i completely agree i mean i just feel like if i'm gonna hear another i'm gonna be like off seriously Because that's, uh, I, I know exactly, because every time I hear it, and I hear it a lot in the in my third, when I'm going to be talking about it, mm-hmm. because this particular composer for me, I'm going to be talking about a composer that kind of went roll downhill. Roll on to your third right away. I think, I think we just say that you agree, and just roll right on to your third if it's related. Let's do it. Let's well, do it's, it. it's just, I'm just going to quickly touch up on about it. Uh, so my third one is kind of like... And not the down. Okay, maybe it is a downfall of Danny Elfman's music, but um, but um, it's mainly his later music, like past Corpse Bride, because I think mm-hmm. Corpse Bride, like it tried to replicate the same sort of quirky and magical tone that maybe Nightmare Before Christmas had, because it's again, it's um, Corpse Bride is a stop motion film, mm-hmm. um, directed by Tim Burton and. Um, music composed by uh, Danny Elfman. Yeah. Um, whereas Nightmare Before Christmas was actually directed by Henry Selick. Um, oh. Yeah. So he- everybody thinks that it was directed by Tim Burton, but Tim Burton created like it was like he created the characters and the storyline, oh, but the okay. actual direction and the creation, kind of everything, was by Henry Selick, the same guy who did Coraline. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so um, if you watch them both, you can, this the tones, the tonalities are quite similar, Coraline and yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I can see Cor- that. Um, yeah. But the Corpse of Ride, there's, yeah, it just, musically, um, it, it tried to replicate it, but it just didn't work. Like, the main theme is a nice lullaby, mm-hmm. because it's very lullaby-like, and it is memorable, but everything else was just like a distant memory, and they just kind of faded away for me, like dust. Yeah. And, and then moving on, as he carried on working on other films, there are a few gems that he, that kind of have come through. Like I do like um, Go On The Train soundtrack because- Really? I, I actually, I didn't even know that he did that one. I found that film 100% forgettable. No, the film was forgettable, but the music was kind of like interesting. I think it's because like, I, I know it's Danny Elfman and for me it was a, it was a breath of fresh air because mm-hmm. previously all his films, like Alice in Wonderland, um, Charlie mm. and the Chocolate Factory, all those films for God's sakes <laughs> used a f***ing ostinato and I was just like, and I was like, are you kidding me? And I was just like, are you really lazy now, Daddy? Like, are you We should have put a salty language warning on this episode. Sorry. It's just, it's my biggest pet peeve. Just because I just felt like, oh, you've it just felt like he lost. He lost the magic. He lost the magic, yeah. And um, and even when he did um, the Justice League soundtrack, and mm-hmm. you know he was talking about um, bringing back the Batman theme from the 1989 version, and I just felt a bit like, why? Why would you? I know it's a nostalgia thing, and you're maybe trying to do a sort of a cool. Mm-hmm. 
you know to maybe appeal to the old like to the old school fans but i just felt that like well this is a completely different batman if my if michael keaton was in the justice league playing like maybe an older uh yep. bruce wayne fine I, I can see the connection i get it but this is completely different actor completely different storyline why would you bring that back it did not make any sense and i did not enjoy that yeah, so that's kind of like my my pet peeve with just... The downfall of Danny Elfman. Downfall of Danny Elfman. I feel very bad. I hope he's not going to be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are, like, let's let's bring back I the... I still love you, but... Um... Let's, br- let's bring back the, the, the joyful creativity. I think I think he maybe I... needs to embrace his little his inner child. Yeah, and just... that was definitely just... out to play in those earlier soundtracks, I think. Definitely. And, like, here's a few samples of his older tracks. Mm-hmm. Like Edward Scissorhands. Beetlejuice. Batman. And then here are Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Alice in Wonderland. what I miss in the current music which you get if you really search for it uh, when you're searching for um, independent movies is the real experimentation and experimentation with character of the music Mm. you know like you can experiment with music to um, manipulate the sounds to make them more sound design but when you place melody on top of it and you kind of make an old sound sound new if that makes sense yeah when you give life to something that you've never thought that oh this instrument or this way of using voice could create something so magical so weird and something mm-hmm. you know well maybe the next generation of composers are working towards that they just need to be given the platform to be heard more. Uh, yeah or maybe the next generation of composers are just doing like yeah stop it stop it now yeah okay 
there's more things. Just look up across the horizon. There are more things than the exactly. Now, there's more. There's more to life than that. Now, I agree with you 100 percent on this on this particular piece. But like, I'll just play devil's advocate incredibly briefly, which is to say that so like one of the criticisms that many people have, and indeed you you yourself have expressed of John Williams, has been his unwillingness to change, and that he's basically just still writing how he has. Now, I would say he's he's evolved, but he's evolved in his at his own speed and in his own way. Do you perhaps feel that that's what? Danny Elfman needed to do was actually stick to his own sound and maybe bring it forward a bit, perhaps more successfully mm. than John Williams. So at very least, when you got a Danny Elfman soundtrack, you'd be like, oh, well, at least, you know, some of the old guard are still able to do it. Well, this is where I can't, I'm going to try my hardest to explain because I think he has stayed with his, or he thinks he may have stayed with his signature style. Okay, that's going to be interesting, yeah. But I feel like maybe it's the arrangement and maybe the orchestration, the use of the um, plugins or something's changed that he managed what was so great about the previous things is that the element of weird rhythms coming at you from nowhere. Mm-hmm. The only way I can explain it is that it feels like the comparing to like the Beetlejuice music to um, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it's Beetlejuice sounds very quite sporadic and quite raw and quite gritty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sounds it, it has a similar sort of quirkiness to it, but it's too clean. Mm. It's too polished. Okay. It doesn't stand out for me in the same way that some like a Beetlejuice theme does. Yeah, so it it sounds like almost like it could be that like perhaps he's actually gotten better at making the sound that he wants and it's made it more predictable. Though perhaps early on he was stretching himself to create this sound and he had a certain uh, wackiness of him not quite being able to do it. But And maybe it's gotten easier and easier over time and that's resulted in being less unpredictable. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah, and primarily with the Tim Burton films. But I do feel that when he worked with other films, like the certain soundtracks, like Goodwill Hunting, was it still was different from his. But I remember when hearing the beginning of Goodwill Hunting, I was thinking, oh, it's there's something about it that reminds me of Danny Elfman. And then when I saw the credit to say Danny music composed by Danny Elfman, I was like, oh my god, that's brilliant. So he still before. Around that time, like n- late 90s, early noughties, he, he was still able to create different soundtracks for different films um, just with different storytelling, but still retain a little hint of his style that would creep in, yep. that would kind of signa- the signa- signal to the audience that, like, it's me. Yeah, yeah. You know? But then after, like I said, I think past Corpse Bride, um, when he was working on generic, uh, I guess, other films, his music became too generic for me, to the point where he kind of almost either lost his ability to kind of just signal that, oh, it's me, because maybe the studios were just like, oh, you know, you've got enough money, just kind of write music, just write film music for us. You don't need to establish or give us Danny Elfman sound, yeah. necessarily, yeah. you know? But then with his Tim Burton projects, it felt like, it's too much of a Danny Elfman to the point where it lost its magic. Yeah. Because then he kind of stayed with the formula. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that's probably something that both of them kind of fell into. They were just told, be quirky, be Tim Burton, be Danny Elfman, be Johnny Depp. And yeah, in and all three in, cases, it, it was to their detriment, I think, yeah. But, yeah, so that's how I feel about it. Okay, okay. I will move on to my last one then. This could be controversial. This was possibly one of the first things that I ever learnt about film music and how it is different from quote-unquote normal music uh, and it has always slightly bothered me but I acknowledge that often done well okay the, sus- the suspense is killing me I know right the overuse of unusual instruments and non-instruments okay I need some examples I mean practically every film score is the example um, <laughs> pretty much anything not written by John Williams pretty much so I remember, so my, my, as I said, this is one of the first things I ever came across. Uh, so my, my first experience was um, I used to live near a, um, an Australian composer, a very famous Australian composer, who I won't mention. And I was able Why not? to borrow. I just, I just won't. <laughs> okay. But I, I, was, I was able to borrow like a, a book of his scores. And at this point I was playing in a school orchestra and I was like, oh, well, this would be amazing because our orchestra had been hoping to play some more Australian music. And so I had these scores. I had obviously the permission of the composer, so it was not going to be a problem. And I, I took it in. I took it to our conductor and said, hey, look, I've got all of this music. Would, you know, should, should we play any of it? And she went through it and she gave it back to me a couple of weeks later. And she was like, we can't perform any of these because literally every single piece in here calls for an unusual instrument that we don't have. They all had a theremin, a harpsichord, uh, like some obscure instrument um, that just no normal orchestra has it, mm. it, it, they all had something weird and then I began to realize that everyone does it I mean I I personally really love the tv composer Bear McCreary uh, well he's now also a film composer and we should do one of his soundtracks at some point but like he has never met a, a film or a score that didn't require require some weird instrument like a, a hurdy-gurdy or a detuned guitar or a detuned piano or bagpipes. Like he's never seen a project and been like, you know what, we could actually just do this with a traditional ensemble. Okay. You, you know, and like I just I feel like at some point it becomes a crutch that basically – people start doing it just to justify that they've been creative because they can yeah. go to a director and they can say, look at me, I've been really creative because I've written half of this score on like spoons from my cutlery drawer. <laughs> and like that doesn't by Does itself it serve the make purpose? it better. Yeah. I think that's the question. Like are you just doing it just because you want to show off your skills or is, the, is that choice, those choices are actually going to serve the story of the film? Yeah. I, I don't think it does show off your skills, to be honest. I think it's I think it's lazy. So there's a film called The Program about uh, like the drug cheat uh, stuff around Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And the composer Alex Hefe is there. One of the things he did was he mounted a bicycle in the middle of the orchestra and somebody like turns the wheel and bangs the spokes and, and things like that. And like it's that's not genius. That's just mounting a literal bicycle and hitting it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's not it's not particularly clever to mix that in. It's just well, it's a bicycle it's a movie that has bicycles in it, so let's hit a bicycle cuz that's clever. Like it it's just it makes it different and it makes it unique and I think it, it, it's more it's almost did more it, marketing than did music. Did it add anything to the soundtrack? No, you barely hear it. It, it, it at <laughs> most sounds like So it's basically for show. 
Yeah, it at most sounds like a whole bunch of like fairly basic percussion instruments. So that's where I don't like where it goes wrong. Like, you know, when we did a pod, um, when one of our episodes with Emily Simone, uh, March mm. of the Penguins, where she used icicles and the footsteps yeah. of snow. But that was cleverly done and manipulated to create, to tell the story to, and you could hear it. But yeah. if what he did, it's just kind of like just for this, it's, again, as I say, it's just for show. It's just for the dramatics of being like, oh, look at me. I'm putting a, I'm hitting yeah. a bicycle just to kind of show off that, oh, I'm being experimental. Yeah. And when like, so, yeah, yeah I agree. I, so I almost exclude um, like proper electronica artists from this to a point because like their whole art form, and I know this is also a lot of what you do, you start with like real ambient sounds and you kind of you build from there so like they are actually the bedrock of the track and hmm. then and then off you go so that is an entirely different approach and i'm fine with that that is just that that is you know that that is their style of of musical construction and it is an essential component th- of their sound i th- i think i know what you mean i think there's an element of where as a composer you want to be pushing yourself pushing the boundaries of creativity and to create new music new sounds but don't be a douche about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like be, there has to be a thought process behind it. Like, yeah. I think that's where you're getting at. The fact that yeah. like make it, make it meaningful, make it really like, don't just make it into like a, not a trend, where's a, a novelty maybe is the word or don't make it just a- A gimmick. A, sh- a gimmick, that's it. That's the word I was looking at. Yeah, don't make it into a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like, so part of me also feels that it actually, so a part of it I think is, is the marketing thing and be like, Oh, look how I'm creative. I also think a lot of it is, um, people genuinely being fearful of their own orchestration skills, that they're, they're scared of being found out for their ability to find interesting combinations within the existing constraints of an orchestra. And so they feel like they need to add something different because it's going to hide and somehow like distract from the fact that their orchestration was a bit dull because there's billions of different sounds you can make with a normal ensemble. And the beauty of doing it with a normal ensemble is it can then be performed by other people. The the rest of the world can then interact with it. An orchestra can actually pick up your score and play it. Mm. But you do one of these weird things, you bring in a theremin or something and all of a sudden really only a handful of orchestras in the world can play it. Um, and it just it, it's limiting. it loses something. Yeah. If I hear another out of tune hurdy gurdy, <laughs> you're gonna throw it at that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, it's just like it doesn't belong in. No, every you, no. Film. You know what you're gonna do? You're gonna tune it. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna tune it and ruin it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna tune it and make it sound like it should sound. Yeah, tuned. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so so that's my last one. Which of all of them? Which one do we think is the is the most, uh, shall we say, insidious? I think all of them. They're all pretty bad, right? <laughs> yeah, um, they're all bad because it, it's ba- they're bad, and it basically signifies that that change is required. You know, mm-hmm. 
the wave is the kind of like reaching its peak so something new needs to come out of the all everything that we've just discussed interesting yeah that's how i feel um yeah if i was to put my finger on it it's something that neither of us specifically said mm-hmm. but uh, but was probably a part of i think our last four choice well n- maybe not your elfman one so much although maybe a little bit of the elfman but it's only three of the last four Mm-hmm. Which is this move to music being purely atmosphere? Yeah, definitely. I think well, that's. I think that there there is the connection between all of our pet peeves. The fact that nowadays it is all about <laughs> atmosphere and moving away from sort of more thematic and more emotional writing, like because atmosphere it gives you an emotional response, but I don't think it builds an emotional memory. No, and I think. I, I do fear that to a certain extent, people who have grown up, I mean, kind of us, but we got the late end of the the 80s and 90s when there were very strong themes in, in film. But if you were born maybe like from about 96 onwards, when you're older, you're not going to get that many nostalgia bombs from hearing a piece of music from a film that you saw when you were 12. I think, I agree. I don't think you'll get that from films, but I think in uh, TV shows you do. Some for sure. Yeah, Game of Thrones, definitely. I was was just about to sing that (laughs) because because I I, I, I miss it. Yeah. I miss that element of being able to hum a melody and somebody else who I don't know is going to join in and be like, it's that moment of like create, having a community reaction and everybody joining in and singing. Yeah. You can bond over that. Yeah. You can, yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's what's missing nowadays. And, you know, a lot of film music for sure. Um, You're right. And TV definitely has it a bit more, although has plenty where it doesn't and even video games have quite a bit like people will have that reaction to humming things from final fantasy and mario and mm. secret of monkey island and, and like yeah like yeah there, there are still some art forms that have it but it's yeah it's it's weird that we're giving it up and it's a bit short-sighted I and think. it's and it's strange because again not wanting to go quite politically but as a, maybe more on a social commentary i think we need that connection Mm-hmm. within our community something that binds us and something that makes us pay attention to each other i guess yeah. um because all this atmospheric sort of abstract is very quite loose and n- not uninviting mm. um very isolating you know interesting yeah yeah no i agree and whereas when you have, mel- yeah, so that's what it is nowadays. And we need to kind of bring each other back to not, not exactly love each other, but like, again, connect with everybody, you know? Yeah. And it's such a human thing to be able to share a song together. And it's kind of weird because at the same time, you have things like TikTok, which kind of is people just like kind of like singing at each other, even though it's mainly miming and stuff. It is, it's people communicating with snippets of music fundamentally. Mm. But yeah, in an era where there isn't quite so much to actually communicate with, which is, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit ironic, I think. Yeah. yeah. So that's a rather sad note. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. But next week, next week is going to be a lot more fun. Now, it's next Yay, week. It practically will be next week, actually. But ne- next month, we yeah, we're moving on to Christmas. I know. And Yay! <laughs> Yay! It, it, Yay! <laughs> so, Christmas so Hallow- is coming. <laughs> if Halloween is your Christmas, what is Christmas? Is that your Halloween? <laughs> Easter. It's your Easter. <laughs> oh, no, no, Christmas is Christmas. Christmas I, is I, Christmas. Well, it's in like you know, I, I think when I said like um, Halloween is my Christmas, as in like I give enough the same amount of attention and the build up to the holiday as I do for Christmas. You know, excellent. Um, I give them equal amount of attention, whereas I find that Halloween nowadays people just kind of try and skip it and just go straight to Christmas. Mm. In September, October, no time. So, you know, I'm yep. just like, no. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to uh, the next episode because we're going to be talking about one of them that I don't know how many times I've mentioned it <laughs> <laughs> in the two we're, we're talking seasons. about some good Danny Elfman. <laughs> yes. The be- like the kind of one of his probably best um, soundtracks. Um, yep. I probably already mentioned it in this episode. Um, but Yes, you have. <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, it's obviously Nightmare Before Christmas. And How the Grinch Stole Christmas with music by James Horner, who is oh. one of my absolute favourite composers. Wow, this is going to be my favourite composer versus your favourite composer. Oh, this is going to be really interesting. Although I know who the winner is going to be already, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just doing it just to go through the motions. Wow, spoiler alert. Um <laughs> In the meantime, let us know what you think. Did you did you like where we're going? I, I, what we what we just said. Do 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 you feel that maybe the atmospheric film thing has perhaps gone too far and is being overused, or are you like, what are these melody things? Down with melody, atmosphere forever. <laughs> melody? I don't know what they're talking about. Melody? Yeah, what, what was that? Yeah, I've never heard one. <laughs> let us know through you know. Our, our Facebook page, at Tristella, Twitter, Instagram, all of those things. And certainly as we start to come into the holiday season, I mean, if there's two things I know about the holiday season, is that you spend a lot of time with friends and family, and you also spend a lot of time traveling. Now, to me, that basically says podcasts. It's a time to tell your friends and family about the podcast you've been listening to, maybe a particular one about music soundtracks that you particularly enjoy. And it's also a time which you've got these long, like, plane trips, train trips, bus trips, car trips, in which you might want to listen to a podcast. So, you know, spread the word. Let's, let's see if we can get some more people on board. Until then, until next month, which will be probably very soon, stay classy and uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you?